1110-993 WBT, hour number three underway here. The phone number 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Alrighty, so the uh, folks over at uh, PBS and uh, the Associated Press run a story headline, state-level anti-transgender legislation reverberates on Day of Remembrance. And they look at North Carolina. They start off by saying persistent efforts by North Carolina's legislature to restrict transgender lives cast cast a shadow over Callum Bradford as he grew up in Chapel Hill, following him through his journey of self-discovery, coming out and obtaining the gender-affirming health care the 16-year-old credits as life-saving. You don't hear it? Anyway, uh, after Republicans swept most state-level elections this month, Bradford and other trans and gender nonconforming residents are bracing for the possibility of new or reintroduced legislation targeting LGBTQ people. Although I'm seeing it now. What is it? LG, yeah, LGBTQ. Okay, I thought... I'm seeing it some places as they're swapping the B and the T. I don't know if that's intentional or typo. Anyway, um, so Republicans sweep most state-level elections this month. And now, because, you know, whenever you start a story in journalism and you take the, the you, you know, so-and-so is a person and this affects, right? And you tell the story through this person, right? You, you introduce them in the first paragraph and then you kind of tie in the low or the, the, the larger issues into the, into the individual story. And so this is the guy they're using, Callum Bradford, uh, grew up in Chapel Hill, and uh, he's 16. And he says gender-affirming health care uh, saved his life. And that's what they call it, gender-affirming health care, which, by the way, um, that is also the preferred description of one side of the debate, right? The things as elemental as the language, this is where... This is where the left is is so good at this, and, and it helps because they have so many allies in the media that are willing to rewrite the dictionary, rewrite the AP style book, rewrite all of these, uh, like the DSM and health manuals, and they just rewrite this stuff in order to change the meaning of words in order to advance particular narratives or agendas. A great example. Hang on. It's in the stack of stuff here. Where is it? It's the, uh, it's the title... Nine, where is it here? Now, now let's see. I've got it all pinned here in too many different places. What I've learned. No, that's not it. Medical groups. That's not it. Majority. No, that's not it. Where is it? Uh, yeah, here it is. See? Okay. A federal district court in Texas ruled against a Biden administration attempt to equate sex with gender identity in Title IX. Well, wait a minute. Equate sex with gender identity in Title IX. But I thought sex and gender identity are different. Oh, no, no. You see, in Title IX, the words gender identity don't exist. So this is why I always say I make this joke that sex and gender identity or sex and gender are different. Unless, of course, they need to be the same in order to win a particular argument at any given time. And then it'll go back to being different. But it can be the same. And this is what I'm referring to. This where you have the Biden administration, but before them, the Obama administration did the same thing. They said, oh, okay, well, in Title IX, in this legislation, it says you're not allowed to discriminate based on sex. And so what they're trying to do is redefine the word sex to include 
sexual orientation, and gender identity, when in fact the word sex simply meant male or female. That's how it was used. You can't discriminate against someone just because they're a female. And this went to, uh, you know, like, school uh, athletic spending, right? The ruling was issued November 11th. It's a case called Nice versus Becerra. It determined that sex could not be construed to include gender identity or sexual orientation, a move the administration recently attempted to solidify by revising Title IX. The court ruled that Title IX's legal protection centered around the understanding of the word sex as defined when Title IX was passed. Right. Which, of course, it should be. It should be defined as what it was defined as when it was passed. That was their intent. You don't get to make up new meanings of words and then apply it when it's in conflict with the original intent. But that's what activist judges do. That's what activist courts do. Title IX operates in binary terms, male and female. And when it references on the basis of sex, it's talking about binary terms, male and female. Now, you may not like that. You may think that's transphobic. You may think that's bigoted or whatever. But that law was written at a time when that's what the term meant. Campusreform.org, it's where the story is published, reported on multiple states which passed laws to safeguard women's sports by limiting eligibility to sex and not gender identity. The Nice versus Becerra case challenged the administration policy that required medical professionals to provide transgender health care services. Title IX prohibits discrimination based on sex, but the administration broadened that interpretation to include transgender individuals. Um, The legal organization uh, that filed the amicus brief or one of the amicus briefs was Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, And they argued in part that because Biden reinterpreted sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity, then female athletes would now be forced to compete with men on women's sports teams. Because of course they would. Yeah, of course they would. All right, so back to the uh, Associated Press PBS piece. Um, After Republicans win most statewide level elections this month, Colin Bradford and um, and other trans and gender nonconforming residents are bracing for the possibility of new or reintroduced legislation targeting LGBTQ people. There it is again, targeting them. The Parents' Bill of Rights did not target LGBTQ people. It said you don't get to talk about sexual orient or, or sexual education with K through third graders. You don't get to do that. And it doesn't matter if it's hetero or homo or non-binary or transgender or whatever. It doesn't matter the kind. None of it. It's all banned. The proper answer, if you're a teacher and the kid comes up wanting to ask about your sex life, the proper answer is go to the principal's office. You got detention. (laughs) I don't talk about that with you. But we can't do that, I guess. In today's performative culture, you know, we can't do that. Everything has to be just... Just vomited out there for everybody to you need validation from everybody, even if it's a five-year-old, I guess. All right. That's, and by the way, that's the benefit of the doubt. The other side of this is that it's that it is actually a campaign at grooming. But I'm not even I'm not even making that argument here. I'm just saying you just you shouldn't be doing this to the kids. They're too young. It's not age appropriate.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. AP reporting the reverberations of state-level anti-trans legislation. See, they've just adopted the language of the left. Just putting, they're just baking it right into the cake. So any legislation that says, no, you don't get to, you know, have a drag queen story hour in front of your first grade class, for example. You can't do that. That now becomes an anti-trans piece of legislation. Rather than saying something like, you know, it's an age-appropriate legislation, the Age Appropriateness Act, or something like that. It's not a childhood protection bill. No, 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 it's an anti-trans. And the media adopts that language, just like they do with the, quote, don't say gay language, which, by the way, makes an appearance. That branding, of course, makes an appearance in this article. It says, touted by GOP senators as a toolkit to help parents oversee their children's education and health care. The bill here in North Carolina included provisions to bar instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity in K through three curricula and to require schools to alert parents prior to any change in the name or pronoun use for their child. Cooper condemned the measure and likened it to Florida's don't say gay law. Uh, Transphobe, hello. The use of the pronouns thing, that's more of a, you know, is that's more of the transgenderism than it is the, than the L's and the G's, no? And besides, Florida's law did not say don't say gay, first of all. Second of all, uh, the, uh, the teaching of uh, these sexual-related topics to K-3 through students, I think a lot of people, no matter what their politics, would agree those kids probably should not be having sex ed at that age, but maybe there are some parents that are like, oh, no, totally, you know, here here you go. I'll, I'll, I'll even, you know, donate some supplies to the classroom for the instruction. I, I mean, maybe there are. I don't know. Then the second part here requires schools to alert parents prior to any change in the name or pronoun used for their child. Well, two things. First, gender dysphoria and and uh, transgenderism, right? This has been delisted out of the DSM. This is the like the list of all of the uh, mental disorders and stuff. So they're saying it's not a mental condition. In fact, that's very cisgender oriented thinking. That when psychology first uh, uh, you know came on the scene, psychologists were all you know white males cisgendered, and so they labeled all these things as abnormal and unhealthy. And signs of mental disorder, if not a mental disorder. And so they're going to rip down all of those constructs, and now they're going to redefine it. But they still say this is a medical condition, right? This is why the it's why you get you get these arguments that we should be paying for these uh, surgeries and the hormone treatments and stuff because this is a medical condition. Okay, so tell me then, are there other medical conditions that parents should not know their children have? Why? Tell me, are, are there other medical conditions that the school should hide from parents? If their kids are exhibiting a medical condition in class, should schools be allowed to hide those from their parents? What is the ethical argument for that? I'd like to know. I haven't seen one. I have not seen a defense. The only thing that you get is, well, they could, it could open them up for bullying at home. Okay, well, then you would be a mandatory reporter, Right. The teachers would, they are a required reporter. They have to, they've got to report if there's abuse at home. So if there's, 
If you say, hey, I'm going to identify as, you know, whatever today, and then the parents get notified, and then the next day you show up and you're all beaten up, then you then the parents get reported to DSS, and you get a visit from the government. That's how that happens. Well, we want to prevent the abuse from even happening. Well, what if the parent that the kid thinks is going to react with outrage, what if they don't? I There are people I know in my life that, like, they're daughter came out and on the one hand it's like the one that you thought would be opposed to it is the most accepting and vice versa the one that you thought would be the most accepting is the one who's not so you don't ever know these things you can't ever tell these things but that you're just basing it all off of what the child is telling you and by the way there's some stuff going on there too i'm going to get to that back to the ap story um they do it again here in the, the adoption of the brand preferred by the left. The reverberations are particularly intense in North Carolina, which provided the blueprint for the present wave of, okay, that's not true, the, of the nationwide anti-trans legislation when in 2016 lawmakers passed a bill to restrict transgender access to public restrooms and prevent municipalities from enacting new anti-discrimination ordinances. Okay, first off, they call it anti-trans legislation. Again, it wasn't, remember, female protection law. No, they just adopt the anti-trans legislation as the brand because that's preferred by the left. It helps to frame the mind and the issue towards a certain outcome. Also, if that were the blueprint, why did it get repealed? If that was the blueprint, why don't we still have it on the books? Later on in the piece, Bethany Corrigan, executive director of Transcend Charlotte, a service provider for gender diverse adults in Mecklenburg County, said the mandated reporting aspect of such bills constitutes forced outing, which can put LGBTQ youths at greater risk for housing instability, mental health crises and violence. I just went over the the violence data, though. Corrigan warned it's not just explicit anti-LGBTQ bills. That might affect trans rights. They said further abortion restrictions. Yeah, they could be used to limit access to gender affirming health care because you got to keep hammering away at the abortion issue. Democrats got to bring everything back through the abortion prism. They then go over to Tennessee. And they talk about how in neighboring Tennessee, the GOP-controlled legislature announced after Election Day that its first priority will be to ban medical providers from altering a child's hormones or performing surgeries that enable them to present as a gender different from their biological sex. Guidance from the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, or WPATH, says youths experiencing gender dysphoria can start taking hormones at age 14. As of this year, it lowered the recommended minimum age for some surgeries, including breast removal, to age 15 and genital surgeries to age 17. Catherine Turk, a historian of women, gender and sexuality at UNC Chapel Hill. I can hear your eyes rolling already. Said the recent surge in anti-trans legislation follows a historical pattern of pushback after marginalized groups gain visibility and political momentum. They're children. They're children. NHS overseas in Europe, in England, National Health Service. Country's first publicly funded health care provider has warned most children who identify as transgender 
are experiencing a transient phase. Oh, well, that might be problematic for some kids who undergo the surgeries then if it's a transient phase and then they kind of come out of that transient phase in a year or so and uh, now they're on hormones for the rest of their lives. They've got surgeries that have attached different pieces of their body into other areas of their body and they may be fighting rejection, right? Like the body rejects certain things like that. Huh. Transient phase. The statement is reflective of evidence that in most cases, gender incongruence does not persist into adolescence, according to the NHS report. It does not persist into adolescence. I understand there are, there's a lot of money. I know, I know, like there's a lot of money tied to these surgeries for a lot of hospitals. I get it. I get it. I understand. Like you, you see dollar signs here in quote affirmation. It's where everybody is moving. Everyone's rushing to this thing. But maybe, maybe just maybe pump the brakes on this a little bit. Maybe wait and see. Because you've got people who have transitioned and and we have not yet begun to see the life, uh, the, the, the trajectory of their lifespan and whether they start detransing. Because there are some that are now starting. And as they detransition, first off, they're being just attacked and savaged. But the other thing is they have serious medical problems for the rest of their lives. So maybe we should maybe we should pump the brakes. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Uh, So National Review, this was a piece out actually last month, quoting the uh, National Health Services out of England, put out a report that urged a more cautious approach to treating gender dysphoria, uh, dysphoria in minors, as well as banning the use of puberty blockers in patients under the age of 18, but for strict clinical trials. The NHS's new clinical approach comes on the heels of the shuttering of the Tavistock Center. That is the only clinic dedicated to treating gender dysphoria in the UK. An internal investigation revealed that Tavistock failed on several accounts, including keeping routine and consistent data, pursuing an unquestioning affirmative approach and disregarding other health issues. The new regional clinics that are going to replace Tavistock are going to be run by medical doctors rather than therapists, and existing mental health issues, such as autism, will be considered before treating gender dysphoric minors. This watchful waiting approach will take into account the potential harms elicited by an inappropriate gender transition. Later on in the article... National Review's Ari Blaff says public concerns about Tavistock's approach were raised by a notable case involving Kira Bell, a teenage girl who transitioned, deeply regretted it, and then detransitioned. She said, as I matured, I recognized that gender dysphoria was a symptom of my overall misery, not its cause. The consequences of what happened to me have been profound. Possible infertility, loss of my breasts, and inability to breastfeed, atrophied genitals, permanently changed voice, and facial hair. 
She said when she went there, she had so many problems, so many issues, that it was comforting to think that I had only one that needed solving. And if I solved that, all these other problems went away. And that wasn't the case. There's been a spike in gender dysphoria referrals in the last decade, growing from about 250 to now more than 5,000. Here's the problem, right? You hear this argument that without gender affirmation, either surgeries or the, uh, the, the therapies, right, the, whatever the, the, the treatments are, that without that, then you're going to see your kid kill themselves. That's, what they, that's the, the line that is used to frighten parents into agreeing to the course of treatments. They say trans uh, kids are more likely to commit suicide, so if you don't have this you know, affirmation approach, then chances are greater your child's going to kill themselves. And parents are very afraid of that, so they go along. I understand. I'm not a parent, but I, I can understand. You, you, don't want, you don't want that for your kid. And the reason why we see all of the spike now from, like, in this case, 250 referrals for dysphoria 10 years ago to now more than 5,000 a year. Why does it grow from 250 to 5,000 in the U.K.? Uh, and we are to believe that it is because of what? Societal acceptance, right? This is the argument that is put forth, that society is now more accepting of it, people are now more in tune with it, and uh, they are now able to get the treatments without stigmatization, right? Okay then where were all the suicides before? I know I am attempting to apply a consistent logical standard to this issue, but where were the, what would the difference be here? 4,750 suicides a year. Where, would, where are those? Why are they not showing up in the, in the data? There's never an accounting for this, by the way. There is never an accounting for the drop-off in suicides. You, you would expect to see that, right? Because if you've got more people that are now transitioning, they're now free to do it. There's no stigmatization, so they're not killing themselves because they're transitioning. So where did all of the suicides go? No, in fact, suicides have gone up. But I guess that, I mean, maybe pandemic-related solely, but... And by the way, this is, this is not transphobic. This is not born out of any hatred. Right? I always say this when I discuss dysphoria. I cannot imagine what it must be like to believe that a part of your body is not you. I don't know what that's like. Just like I don't know what it's like to look in the mirror and think, I am 700 pounds. I need to keep you know, purging. And in fact, I'm only 80 pounds. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like when people think that they have uh, uh, a limb that uh, doesn't belong to them. They are transabilists. It is a thing. People will cut off their limbs. People will blind themselves. They will pretend to be in a wheelchair. They will use crutches, right? I mean, it, it, this, these are things that people experience, and I don't know what that's like. I can't imagine what that's like. That's got to be so frustrating to be constantly thinking like that. Like, there's this hand, and this hand isn't my hand. I was born without a hand. Why do I have this hand? I can't believe I have this hand, you know? I don't, I don't know what that's like. I'm sympathetic to that. I truly am. We all have a, a, a burden we're bearing. You never know what other people's burdens are. But 
I don't think the way that you help somebody is to say, oh, you know what? You really are 700 pounds. You should totally quit. You should totally keep vomiting. Absolutely. Yes. Keep purging. I don't think doctors recommend that. Quite the opposite, right? Quite the opposite. There is a doctor, actually, Erica Anderson, 71 years old, transgender. She's one of the few clinical psychologists specializing in transgender youth to publicly question the sharp rise in adolescents coming out as trans or non-binary. She's helped hundreds of teens transition, but she's also come to believe that some children identifying as trans are falling under the influence of their peers and social media, and that some clinicians are failing to subject minors to rigorous mental health evaluations before recommending hormones or surgeries. Quote, I think it's gone too far, she said. Until recently, she until recently, she led the U.S. professional society that's at the forefront of transgender care. That organization I just mentioned to you, WPATH, whatever, that that um, reduced all of the ages for the surgeries and, and hormones and everything. Yes, she used to be leader in that group. For a while, we were all happy that society was becoming more accepting and more families than ever were embracing children that were gender variant. But now it's got to the point where there are kids presenting at clinics whose parents say, this just doesn't make sense. Her skepticism and her willingness to speak directly to the public put her at the center of America's culture war over trans kids. This is a piece at the L.A. Times way back in April. The first U.S. gender clinic dedicated to youth uh, opened in Massachusetts in 2007. Today, there are more than 60 of these centers. In 2017, federal health researchers surveyed high school students in 19 districts and found 1.8% identified as transgender. That is two and a half times the best estimate that was made just five years prior. The decline in social stigma has allowed more teens to come out. Anderson, though, begins to wonder whether that was the full story. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The first U.S. gender clinic dedicated to youth opened in Massachusetts in 2007. Nowadays, there are more than 60. In 2017, federal health researchers found 1.8% of high school students in 19 districts identified as transgender. That was two and a half times the best estimate that was made five years earlier. Clearly, the decline in social stigma has allowed more teens to come out. But Erica Anderson, transgender psychiatrist who has been uh, one of the few clinical psychologists, rather, specializing in trans youth to publicly question the sharp rise in adolescents coming out as trans or non-binary. She began to wonder whether this was the full story. About 2016, she started working with the Child and Adolescent Gender Center at UC San Francisco, Benioff Children's Hospital. She noticed a growing group of trans youth. Adolescents who had not appeared to question their gender much or at all before puberty. Some drifted from one identity to the other, gender questioning, trans, non-binary, gay. In many of their cases were complicated by anxiety, depression, autism, bipolar disorder, or other mental health conditions that predated their desire to transition. She said to the Washington Post in 2018, quote, a fair number of kids are getting into it because it's trendy. I think in our haste to be supportive, We are missing that element. At the same time, she was careful not to overstate her point. She said, I can assure you, transgender identity is not something one catches. 
As millions of teenagers across the U.S. went into quarantine then in 2020, Anderson found herself meeting more and more parents who were startled when their children came out as trans. The UC San Francisco Adolescent Gender Center, where she worked, saw a total of 373 373 new patients last year. That is up about 100 percent since 2019. The teens tended to tell similar stories. They were in an online school, they had a lot of time on their hands, they were spending time on social media, TikTok, the gram, you know, Instagram, YouTube, even video games, which allowed teens to craft virtual identities that they could then try out in the real world. Online, a stream of trans influencers and activists told teens that they felt comfortable with their bodies or didn't fit in, you know, maybe you're trans, right? If you're, un- if you're uncomfortable, you don't feel like you don't fit in, maybe that's what it is. Some coached kids on how to bind their breasts, how to change their name and pronouns at school, how to push their parents for testosterone. To flatly say there could not be any social influence and formation of gender identity, it flies in the face of reality. Erica Anderson said teenagers influence each other. Does this sound like does this sound like obvious stuff that we all New, like peer pressure, wasn't that the whole thing? Like mom always said, you know, everybody's jumping off a bridge. You know, what to, like what that that's what peer pressure is all about, right? In four decades as a psychologist, Anderson had witnessed waves of adolescents develop eating disorders and repressed memory syndrome. Research suggests that peer influence and social trends played a key role. Was gender identity really the only sphere of adolescent development that's immune from social influence? Think about how obvious that question answers itself, right? How obviously it answers itself. Is gender identity the only sphere of adolescent development that is immune from social influence? I would submit that the argument, uh, the weight of making the argument is on the people who say that it is not, right? That that, that That it doesn't have any kind of social influence component. You have to make this case. I think it's incumbent upon you to make the case that there's no peer pressure, there's no social contagion, no social influence factor at work here. When we have all the research of all the past decades that indicate peer pressure does a lot, particularly among adolescent and uh, and pubescent girls, right? In four decades, she had watched this. She says, and then what happens when the perfect storm of social isolation Exponentially increased consumption of social media, the popularity of alternative identities. Right, this affects the actual development of individual kids. She said, "We're sailing in uncharted seas." Numerous studies show trans teens and more, are more likely than their peers to experience depression and anxiety, and that gender-affirming care can help relieve those problems. But questions remain about how to weigh the benefits of medical interventions against the risks, which include sterility decreased bone density, and other potentially permanent side effects. Most studies demonstrating the benefits focus on teens who went through extensive mental health evaluations or adults who currently identify as trans. Neither group may be representative of teens that seek care today, much like the universe of people who apply to college differs from the universe of those who graduate, right? Just for the fact that they've already gone through it. Nobody comprehensively tracks how often adolescents in the U.S. get the gender-affirming medical interventions and what few statistics exist on how often those who transition go on to regret the decision are highly contested. Most experts agree that teens 
should get an evaluation before receiving medical interventions. But even that is under debate. There are doctors that don't believe there should be any mental evaluation component to this at all. At all. He's, one of them is quoted here in the piece. Hang on, skip ahead here. Do, do, yeah, Eckert. Dr. A.J. Eckert, medical director of the Gender and Life-Affirming Medicine Program at the Anchor Health Initiative in Stamford, Connecticut, the state's first out non-binary trans doctor. And this person goes by they. Their pronouns are they. Being trans or gender diverse is not a mental illness and compulsory psychotherapy is not the standard of care in the gender-affirming medical model. Forcing transgender and gender diverse youth through extensive assessments while their cis peers are affirmed in their identity without question conveys to them that they're not normal. Eckert also dismisses the idea that peer pressure is driving some teens to identify as trans. Quote, is it trendy to be one of the most marginalized and vulnerable groups? Well, the answer to his question, I can tell him is yes. Or sorry, they, I could tell they. It's yes. Yes. When society elevates victim status, as we have in America, right, if you are a victim, you are then conferred status and privilege, and it also obliterates, it erases, it absolves you of any sins that your racial or class demographic might be guilty of. So it serves two purposes. We're not an honor culture, right? We're right. We're, we're not a, a chivalrous culture. We're a victim culture now. Grievances and grudges and such, but victims gain status. Victims gain power, and in doing so, you can then also absolve yourself of any of the the negatives associated with whatever demographic you belong to. So yes, there is actually a benefit to be had here. So yes, there is actual influence from the society. Sure. Again, this was all very obvious to I thought everybody for a very long time. All right, Brett Winterbull is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.